Welcome to Ask Away with Vince and Joe Vitale and hosted by Michael Davis. Vince and Joe Vitale are currently leading the Zacharias Institute. Both hold doctorates from the University of Oxford, Vince in philosophy, and Joe in women in the Old Testament. In a world that increasingly sees the Christian faith is irrational and irrelevant, it is more important than ever for believers to be prepared to give a defense for the faith. Ask Away is brought to you by Robbie Zacharias International Ministries. It's time to Ask Away. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ask Away with Joe Vitale and a very special guest, Naomi Zacharias. Woohoo! Yay! We're excited. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. There is no doubt that there is pain and suffering in the world, but it is also true that some prosper while their neighbors deal with horrors and tragedy. Why would God allow some to avoid suffering while others seem to live in a constant state of misery? Why is it so often that a great deal of this pain is caused by people who claim the name of Christian? How do we faithfully proclaim the gospel of a loving and forgiving God when it seems that the world is contradicting this claim? But before we get started, Naomi, welcome to the show. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about uh, Wellspring? Yes. um, Wellspring International is the humanitarian arm of Robbie Zacharias International Ministries. And we launched Wellspring in 2004 out of a desire to really respond to and participate in a meaningful way in just some of the specific kinds of human suffering um, happening in the world today. So this would be things like human trafficking and sex trafficking and AIDS-related issues and poverty-related issues, war-related issues, domestic violence, Um, just just the tremendous amount of deep suffering that's happening around the globe today. And before we started Wellspring, there had always been a fund at RZIM to be able to distribute funds to support people in extreme need. But we really wanted to give it its rightful place in the ministry by creating Wellspring, but also to be able to invite other people to join us in participating. And so if anybody gives to Wellspring, 100% of that gift goes directly to a project on the ground. We do not operate any of the programs on the ground. Our role is really one of being the eyes and ears for our donors, of doing the due diligence, identifying legitimate need um, and programs that are meeting that need with methods of integrity. And so when a gift is given, um, we can distribute that gift to those programs that have been, we use the word adopted, by us. And then we monitor the use of funds and can report back to the donor on exactly how their gift was used. That's really cool. I'm so happy to have Naomi here with us today, actually, because uh, she's just a really rare and unique individual to be able to carry so much. Like, Naomi has one of the biggest hearts of anybody that I know. Both Michael and I have had the chance to visit different Wellspring projects. And just one of them that I, I went to in India called Little Drops is is a home for the elderly, many of whom mm-hmm. have been abandoned, right, on the street right. or just kicked out of their homes. They don't have anywhere to live. And they're taken into this project and given food, given shelter, given a place to live out the rest of their lives and just even meeting these incredible people who we couldn't even speak the same language, but there was something about just walking in there and holding their hands and looking them in the eye and, and smiling at each other that, that moved me so deeply that I was I was falling apart. I was a mess just visiting that one day. And um, for Naomi, you know, so much of her job is going in and visiting people all over the world and to be able to have the toughness to, to face some of the things that you see day in and day out on these trips, but at the same time to not get hardened to it, mm-hmm. but actually to be able to still... 
have compassion and to see the person in front of you as an individual and not a statistic or a number. But it's it's really hard to carry all of that. So I just have the deepest respect for her. And I'm so glad that we have her on the show today and mm-hmm. um, to be able to speak to us about this intersection of suffering and compassion and how as Christians do we wrestle with these things deeply. So Naomi, thank you so much for being here with us today. Oh, I'm so glad to get the opportunity to talk with you guys. So. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll echo that. Um, I don't know how she does it. I, I went to two projects and we, we, we have, you know, projects all over the world and I was a, a mess by the end of it. But, you know, I do have to say, like, I I spent a lot of time crying my first year with Wellspring. I called my father so many times, and I remember one time him saying, are, are you are you okay? Are you sure you're going to be able to handle this? But it was that tension that you talked of that I think we we have to find, that we have to wrestle with and we have to live with because there is something in you you almost know what you could do, what you could shut off inside so mm-hmm. that you wouldn't feel this so deeply and it wouldn't be so hard, but you don't actually want to be that kind of person. Right. And so you're trying to find that space where you are feeling it and you are actually stepping into it, but where you can still be a help and a resource rather than falling apart, you know, in, in front of somebody who's already struggling to, to carry their own load. So. No, absolutely. But in what you're saying, I kind of feel like there's something – there's something uniquely of that that models the heart of God as well. Because I often think, like, how does God do it? How does he have the capacity to hold all, all the world's pain and, mm-hmm. and and still feel for every single person and yet at the same time be able to rejoice with people who are rejoicing while deeply grieving with people who are grieving? And um, I feel like it's, it's somehow living in that tension, which is right where your ministry serves, right. that we are most modeling the heart of God, of, of living with that mourning, but also with that joy, with with compassion and love. And um, I think it's amazing. I also love that this is so the heart of your dad as well, that uh, yes, when he set up much. the ministry that this, yeah, I know, was it, is it Ravi who talks about love being the strongest apologetic? Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And that's, I mean, one of the things that as I've gotten older, the one of the things that I have grown to appreciate even more about my dad is what I've always seen in him is wherever we were around the world, you know, the person who owned the hotel, the person who was cleaning the hotel, he treated them in the same way and saw them with the same eyes. And I remember being in, it was um, in Southeast Asia, somewhere with him walking down the street and hearing someone yelling out his name, Ravi Ravi. And we turned around and it was a guy who um, was a taxi driver who had driven him, I think it was five years previously and still remembered him. But really the reason he remembered him is my dad has always been able to see people and to make them feel seen and and to make them feel important. And when he engages with them, their life matters. And I just think that's an incredible gift. And the older I've gotten, the more I appreciate him modeling that for us, but seeing the impact that it has on somebody else to feel that they were seen by somebody that day. You know, it's, it's interesting. It also, um, from the, the people who manage the projects that I visited, they modeled that same thing. Mm-hmm. A lot of people who will see someone who's been cast out into the street or someone with, let's say, horrible burns, and they 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 just glance over them. But the people who run these projects, they, they, they have the eyes of God mm-hmm. in the sense that they see them as image bearers. They see them as worthy, while the rest of the world oftentimes just ignores them, steps over them. Um, one of the things I really love about Wellspring uh, is is the gospel focus. Is that every every one of these projects that we it really is ultimately it is about feeding stomachs. It is about fixing bodies, but it's ultimately about forgiveness in Christ is the ultimate goal. 
Um, and that is just that, that's one of the things I really love about Wellspring. Yeah, and I have to say that there has even been some growth for me in that because um, so Wellspring we do support projects that are Christian projects, we support projects that are not Christian projects. But one thing that they always know is who we are and why yeah. it is that we're doing what we're doing. But I do have to say, probably even when we first started this. Um, my, it's not that my faith was any less sound, but there was this thing in me where you focus so much on wanting to meet the physical needs that you, it's so easy to feel like that's going to be enough. So even though like this is what I believe and this is my faith, it's okay for that to stay kind of quiet inside. I know that that's what's driving me here. What they need is for this kind of physical response to their suffering. And I realize that even for them, that just wasn't enough. Right. And I think it was for me, it was a, it was talking to a girl who had been in prostitution. And I remember her looking at me and just saying, this is who I now am. There's nothing you can do for me. Yeah. And realizing that as much as I long to kind of write what's been wronged for her, and you, we want to undo that, we want to kind of give this bomb to, to heal the wound, what we cannot do is actually rewrite their history. Right. We don't have that ability. And that is what they ultimately want. They do want rescue in this life, but they want more than that. They want someone to say that what happened to them was wrong, that it was unjust, and they wanted justice. And the only person that can give them that is God and is Christ and that redemption. And so I realized my faith staying quietly inside, even if it's what drives me, isn't enough for them. Right. It's the, it's the paralytic, right? When, when Jesus uh, healed the paralytic, he, the first thing he did was forgive him. He forgave him of his sins, and ultimately he proved that he had the ability to do that by healing him. But it's, it's not an either-or. It's a both-and. If you, if you have no compassion for, for fellow image bearers, the love of God is in you, isn't in you. And if you, if you don't care about where they're going in, in the future mm-hmm. um, after they die, then you don't have the love of God in you. So it's, it's not an a either-or. It's a both-and. Mm-hmm. I was so moved a couple of weeks ago to listen to one of our team called Rachel Mutezi, who grew up in Islam in Uganda. And she was just talking about how she became a Christian because someone uh, in the church gave her a bowl of rice when she was starving. And and that was the beginning piece. And yeah, then she went on from there to come to know God and Jesus. And now she lives this amazing life and is reaching so many other people still living in those slums. But to me, that signified so much <laughs> the, that that image of, um, I mean, I guess Jesus says he's the bread of life rather than the rice, but there's something about both of those things yeah. coming together. And um, Naomi, I was thinking about the way that um, I was reading a lot recently about how Generation Z, I guess I should say, mm-hmm. rather than Z, because they're in America, I was going to say Generation <laughs> Z, but that will mean nothing to anybody. Um, but how Generation Z um, are more concerned with social justice than all the previous generations, and it's just like a big burden on people's hearts. And um, and someone was writing an article on the Gospel Coalition discussing, like, how do, how do you hold these two together mm-hmm. to hold social justice with the gospel? And, and how are those? Because you know, often I think people do see them as polarized, as if they're distinct yeah. rather than... Um, than one and the same. And um, do you have any wisdom, I guess, for people who are listening, who are thinking, how do I hold these two together in my own life? How, how do they um, walk with justice and love mercy and, and preach the gospel to those who don't know? Well, I don't know if I have wisdom. I have thoughts. But <laughs> <laughs> I can't guarantee they're wise. <laughs> but I, I think that that is a, a very rich question. I was actually just writing an article last week on kind of a, a little angle of that. But I think that there's a lot there for us to unpack. So I'll actually try to even keep it a little bit concise. But 
I do think the younger generation that we have right now is filled with a passion for social justice issues. They want transparency. They want to speak out against um, suffering and this injustice that they see for anybody around the world, and they are just impassioned to do so, and I think in a way that is different from what we have seen in previous generations. At the same time, when I watch what's happening, there is a part of me that feels a bit of worry because I think along with that passion— Perhaps if I can say what I think has maybe come along with that is a standard and a goal that honestly without the gospel I think is going to leave them completely exhausted and disillusioned in the end. Um, A lot of the the conferences that we see, the um, panels that we see, the programs that we see are calling for eradication of sex slavery. And I know that this is a bit sensitive to talk about, but my personal feeling on that, I remember speaking at an event like that, and it was a QA. and a and the first question was, when do you think it is that we will end um, sex slavery? And I had this moment in my mind where I thought, am I going to answer this with what I really think? Um, Because what I really think is I think we live in a horribly broken world. And I think um, these kinds of abuses, um, human slavery is just is is a horrible example of just the awful things that human beings can conceive of to do to each other. And I think until the Savior comes back and all this is redeemed, I think we're always going to be dealing with these outworkings of evil hearts and the objectification of another human being and trying to use them for our own purposes. Um, as far as a goal of eradication, then I think it's going to take Christ's return for that. And if we set that as our goal today, my fear is that we're going to end up with a whole generation that is just deeply disillusioned and gives up when they don't see that happening. I read an article from a girl. She was part of the um, management team of an of a nonprofit organization that was reaching out to children who had been who were being kidnapped and used um, as. Um, as slaves, like by a warlord, basically. So he was forcing them to be child soldiers and then making the young girls, of course, sex slaves. So this organization had done an incredible amount of work for these kids, and they were experiencing a transition in leadership. And one of their leaders wrote, and I can't remember the exact figure, but it was about, you know, something in the 90 percentile of children that they had been able to return home to one particular community in one village. And her next sentence was, but we have utterly failed because of those that remain. I do understand to a point what she's trying to say. She's trying to communicate to the rest of us, this isn't finished, the work isn't finished, because it's not finished until every single one is free and in a safe place. At the same time, I felt, I put that article down and I felt, my heart felt so heavy for her because if that is our standard for success, I just think we're going to see a lot of burnout in this generation. I think, but where the gospel comes into that is that piece where we realize that even Jesus, when he was on earth, he did not eradicate poverty. And it's not because he didn't care, but it is the result of living in the current broken world. And it is going to take the return of a savior until all of that is finished. However, he gives us the call and the privilege to participate and that path to redemption. And I think if we see the value for each individual person that we can impact, that we can you know, bring out of trafficking, that we can bring out of um, child soldiering, or one that we can prevent from going into it, that is a win. And it's a win in this life and in the life to come. So I think for that generation, you know, we look, I look back, I was reading about the greatest generation recently, and, you know, one thing that you have to acknowledge with them is just this tenacity, this work ethic that they had. You know, this was a generation that grew up 
during the Depression, and they saw their parents completely lose their dreams and lose everything. They were living in a period of war, but they would just develop this fierce tenacity and a, such a strong work ethic that they just didn't give up. I think if we could combine some of that from the greatest generation with the passion for justice that the younger generation has now, we could endure. Um, because without that, I do think that well, they'll they. I think there will be a um, just incredible amount of disappointment when we see these things still existing around us. Excellent. Well, um, let us jump into our first question with about halfway through. <laughs> but this is this is great stuff because it actually really does hit on a lot of the uh, of these questions. Um, is is that it is not just the tension of of the the reality that we have a good God, but there's suffering, but also. Um, how do we as Christians live within that uh, in that world? Um, so the first question is from Jaron. God has protected, healed, and prospered some, and others have not experienced protection, healing, or prospering. Is the answer because we can't understand God's infinite wisdom? Yeah, Jaron, thank you so much for this question. Um, it's one we've wrestled with a bit on this show already, but I don't think it's one that's ever going to go away because this is the qu- the enduring question um, mm. that that we all face, I think, throughout our lives. And it's just the ongoing struggle of being in this world. I think Naomi has actually already spoken to this somewhat when she's pointed out, actually, the reality is we are just in a very broken, fallen world. And I think that's, that's a distinctive about uh, the Christian response to suffering that is different from other worldviews. So, for example, it, behind your question, I think some people might want to put it this way and say, well, isn't prospering a sign that God is blessing you? Whereas if you're suffering, that is a sign that God is against you. But actually, Christianity doesn't really present it that way. We're not living by the laws of karma that say, you know, if you do good, then things will go well for you. But if you do badly, then you'll be punished. It's not even an Islamic view that says, inshallah, just accept it as the will of God. But actually, the Christian story says, actually, we are in a deeply fallen and broken world. And the reality of existing in that world world is the Bible talks about it this way, that the sun shines on the righteous and the unrighteous and you know, and it definitely rains on on those who are righteous and unrighteous as well. The point being that we all go through different seasons and different struggles. And I think I just want to question particularly that idea of associating and um, being healed or things going well for you as prospering, because sometimes I think what we may see as blessing actually can be quite the opposite. Or conversely, things that we think are terrible for us actually in the long run might be the very thing that has been good for us. Um, you know, I think, for example, if you're very wealthy and you're experiencing lots of pleasure in this lifetime, it can be easy to look at that and say, well, that must mean that God is on your side. But actually, I tend to find it's when things are going well for me that I get a little bit more lazy and kind of laid back. And I start to think, well, maybe this is something to do with my success. And I tend to push away from God when I'm in those seasons. And actually, there's something about pain in my life that actually wakes me up to the reality of needing God. And now that doesn't mean that we'll always understand in the moment why we're experiencing suffering. But I do think that um, I would just be careful to correlate things going well for you with you necessarily prospering and conversely you suffering with things going badly for you because actually for me personally I can say it's been in those times when I've been really struggling and suffering that actually I've leaned into God in a way that I haven't when things are sometimes going well for me and in the long run what does it really mean to prosper what I think to prosper is to really know God if that's the purpose of life and what we're made for then that's the valuation or the measure by which we need to judge what prospering is as opposed to the pursuit of happiness, for example, in this lifetime. doesn't mean God doesn't desire your ultimate happiness, but sometimes the road to get there may not look the way that we would expect it to look. 
the Christian life is not like the world. Um, There are several Bible verses that uh, I'm going to bring up, but we have to understand that the Christian life um, is being conformed into the image of Christ, and Christ's life was suffering. It was temptation. So um, Mm -hmm. turning to 2 Corinthians 4, if you look at, uh, basically it says that that we are afflicted, we are perplexed, we are struck down, but we are not crushed, we are not forsaken, we're not destroyed. If you look then to 2 Corinthians 4.17, we realize that our momentary affliction is not just something we experience, but it's actually preparing us for glory. And the counter, and, and Joe, you hit on this a lot, the world's idea of prosperity and wealth and health and all the things that the world says that we should seek after is actually in the Bible is is considered a danger. In First uh, Timothy six ten, it's the root of all sorts of evil. In Matthew six uh, twenty four, it says that we cannot serve two masters, uh, God or money. Um, ultimately, we live in this life. Uh, Russell Moore, uh, and I don't know if I said this on the show before, but I, I, I took a, an ethics class from Russell Moore, and he says that the Christian life is like an internship. Generally, internships are terrible. Um, you're not you're not going to enjoy internships. It's the nature of being in an internship. So, but it's always the point of internships. Just like the point of the Christian life is to prepare us for an eternity with God. Just like Christ had to suffer, those who follow Christ have to suffer. And sometimes, just like Joe says, when we lack that suffering. We, we start believing that we are more important than we are and that we have more power than we, than, than we truly do. And I wonder, too, well, let me back up because something Joe said reminded me of a story I read years ago. So I, um, I'm going to try to recall the details here, but it was actually in People magazine. But it was about this little girl who had been born with um, something wrong with her body so that she couldn't feel pain. And I just remember the last quote of the article was the mother saying, I would give anything, anything in this world for Ashlyn to be able to feel pain. Yeah. And the reason was because when you first hear that, that she couldn't feel pain, there's part of you where you think, oh, that's great. That would spare her for some things. But what it didn't spare her when her hand was sitting on a hot stove and she didn't know. Yeah. And so her hand got horribly burned or when she fell down and hurt a knee so badly but didn't realize how hurt the knee was and so ended up having to have further treatment for it. You know, I think it's C.S. Lewis, it says pain is God's megaphone to a hurting world. Pain does serve a kind of purpose, and it does point us to the the fact that we need help and ultimately that we need him. So I think that something Joe said that just reminded me of that story and that illustration. I think Jaron's question, um, God has protected, healed, and prospered some. One thing I want to say, because I know I completely understand what you mean by this, Jaron, but I think it's helpful, at least it's been helpful for me, because I think if we even look at that statement, I think it's probably fair to say that he's protected, healed, and prospered all of us in some ways. And the only reason to make the distinction is I think for me, I can get so caught up in what my own losses have been. And when I do that and start to kind of create this narrative of what life must be like for everyone else, I think I end up kind of way off base. Um, I have a friend, a really close friend who has lost three babies. And I have been blessed with four children right now. And when I'm with her, there is part of me that almost feels guilty for that because this is an area where I feel incredibly blessed by God for something. At the same time, my life has had some darker corners and some losses that hers hasn't included. And so I don't mean that to equate because that's not at all what I'm trying to say, but I think that perspective of realizing that God is 
for each one of us too and the things that he has given us and the things that he has protected and healed us from that we may never even know happen. But to your point and what you're trying to say is that, yes, when you look at the landscape, there are people, you know, this person living in total poverty and this person, you know, living at the completely other end of the spectrum. Why does that, why do we see that disparity? Um, When you say is the answer because we can't understand God's infinite wisdom. Um, I think there's a part where, yes, it is his infinite wisdom, but I do think he gives us more than that. I think there's something on the practical level that we can hold on to enough to be able to have that reasonable faith that there's more. We have our stories are such a small part of a much larger story, and we can only see one piece and one sliver of it. But it was a couple of years ago when I was reading the story of Job, and I know that probably everybody else realized this before me, but it just jumped off the page to me because when you get to the end of that book and Job questions God— And God starts with, where were you, you know, when I created the world? And he launches into many questions that, you know, you would really not want to actually have to answer right then in that (laughs) moment. But the thing that stood out to me is never in history has there been a a sort of a happier answer to be able to give Job. He could have said, Job, it was because you were so righteous. That's why you— were attacked in this way, but he never tells him that. Basically, what he says to him is, who do you believe that I am? And I think God gave Job the answer that would stand for all people, for all questions, and for all time. And so I think when we look at suffering, there is that piece where, yes, he does have an infinite knowledge, but it's not a blind trust that he's asking us to have. It's a faith in the goodness of God and that ultimately he will work all these things out for his purposes. And for our good. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it's not just an infinite wisdom for the totality of creation. It's a personal—I mean, God is working personally in every single believer— um, so that is a faith we have. He is good and he is working things. He didn't just leave us in a random internship. He is in, involved in every <laughs> single element of this internship. And I, I do think, though, like for kind of as you say that for the people, because immediately what comes to my mind is so, you know, we're talking about some specific kinds of suffering. So the woman who has been trafficked and raped repeatedly, yeah. when she hears us say yeah. he's working these things out for good. That's not going to make any sense to her, and understandably so. I think that's where you have to come back to the reality that we live in an evil and fallen world. And that I think, again, for us, there's this tension where, particularly in the public square, we call for a compassion and a a kind of freedom. But then when something goes wrong, we want to shake our fists at God and blame him that he didn't control the situation or that he didn't keep somebody from using their freedom. And so I think we we live in that painful reality that some people are going to use their freedom to inflict evil on somebody else. And I think there, again, there's where we have the incredible gift of the cross that I think by going to the cross, Christ did take it was our sin that he took to the cross, but it was also our suffering that he took to the cross and brings back to the other side. So for someone who has been at that end of such horrific injustice, I mean, their hope in Christ is that he took that pain to the other side again, and it will be redeemed and justice will be served. I guess going back to the image of um, an internship, he's not like a um, tyrant boss. He's no. bossing you around. But I was thinking of um, the words in Isaiah and talks about a suffering servant and actually that being who God is. Mm-hmm. And uh, speaking of healing in this question, um, that you know, the prophecy that you get in Isaiah talking about referring, I believe, to Jesus, where it says by his wounds, we are healed. And, and, and that promise for healing that 
that isn't just the healing experience in this lifetime. Because even if we are healed in this lifetime, yeah. we still go on eventually to, to die a natural death. But I love the words of Jesus in John 11 when he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And that promise that actually whatever it looks like the way things are shaking out in this life that we don't understand and it's hard to make sense of that healing is offered to every single one of us that eternal healing that comes at the expense of the wounds of God and Mm -hmm. I don't know any other response that that has anything to say to somebody like you're saying who's been trafficked and raped multiple times and a God who would say I'm wounded too you know I've I've given my life so that you might live um and it's yeah and otherwise in the face of suffering it's hard to have anything at all to say yeah um, and, and there will yeah. be justice and then and, and you you touched upon this a, a loving god would not allow a woman who was a sex trafficked who was raped repeatedly who was dealing with suffering that we can we can't in, in in the western world very few can even begin to comprehend um but for those who can, who have experienced that, there is a there is a promise that someone will pay for that injustice. There will be there will be retribution, and it will be it will be it will be perfect. It will be God's perfect justice. So uh, that actually uh, let's go into the next question. Um, uh, this is coming from Adiobi. Oh, we got another question for Adiobi. He always has really good questions. Um, I'm Nigerian, and most African countries, including Nigeria, are deeply religious in nature, but by paradox, contain some of the most corrupt and meanest people. People say they're Christians, yet commit such atrocities, and some even done in the name of God. People only practice Christianity as a religion and not as a way of life. Because of this, Christianity is losing its fervor in Nigeria. Most people are increasingly becoming atheists and agnostics and use the ineffectiveness of religion in Nigeria as a primary example. How can I respond to these criticisms? Ada Obi, thank you so much um, for this question. It's a really good one. I I would just want to say I don't think this is just a problem in Nigeria or in Uh, Africa. I think this is a problem I see the world over. (laughs) I I definitely see that in the context that um, I live in as well. Um, One thing I, I just, this is, really in a nutshell, um, but this is how one of my colleagues, Sam Albury, says it. He would basically say, don't judge Jesus by Christians, judge Christians by Jesus. And I think that's where we need to go with this question because you're Mm -hmm. right. People do all sorts of things in the name of all sorts of causes, and often they do it in the name of God, and very often they do it in the name of the Christian God. But the real question is, does this live up to um, to Jesus uh, when they're wearing the name of Christian? Are they actually um, ca- are they representing the one whose name it actually is? And and one thing I find encouraging is the fact that when you look at the life of Jesus, he's so kind and tender to people to, who are marginalized, to the prostitutes, to the sinners, to those who are the outcasts of society. But he's so hard on the religious hypocrites. He says to the Pharisees um, that they're whitewashed tombs, that they look white and clean on the outside, but they're actually dead on the inside because of the way they're conducting their religion and the way that they're um, taking advantage of and oppressing people rather than loving them the way that they have been called to. And particularly when he has that moment in the temple when he turns over the tables of the money changers and and says, this is meant to be a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. So God cannot stand religious hypocrisy. And I take great comfort in that. I think the real question for us is, because, you know, as a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus and you see things being done in his name that you know do not represent him, it's easy to get really frustrated by it. Um, so I guess my question, maybe Naomi, you can help us think this one through, is how, how do we as Christians 
respond to this, to live in such a distinctively different way that we can model something different, something that does represent the life of Christ well. I think that this is you know what what we're talking about here. I agree with you first Joe. I think this is happening everywhere and it is it is something that's really frustrating and even upsetting at times. I think um I think it's my dad who says you can't judge a or you shouldn't judge a um I guess it would be a, a framework or basically um by its abuse. Mm-hmm. Um in the same way that you may have um, somebody who is an atheist who is living a very moral and kind life that doesn't necessarily point to atheism, that points to that person has made those choices. You have to look at the framework itself um, to be able to see what is, you know, Christ represented Christianity perfectly. <laughs> the rest of us have all failed miserably. <laughs> um, so I think, but it, I, it is really difficult because I myself feel that way. When you look at some things that you see on the news or you watch interviews or even some things that come out over Twitter and you just think, oh, why did, why did that person say something that way when they say that they're representing Christ and Christianity because it, it was a poor representation in that moment. So I think that is... Um, something discouraging that we all live with. But I think, I mean, ultimately, like you said, I think it comes back to we have to, I guess, apply that best in our own lives to try to be that representation of him. I myself have done a horrible job at times too, you know, and so, but really trying to live true to that call and be the hands and feet of Christ as we um, understand and know them to be from what he's given us and to point people back to the person of Christ rather than our poor attempt at modeling that sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I do know some um, amazing examples of Nigerian Christians who are actually Mm -hmm. really modeling Christ in beautiful ways. So perhaps one thing you could do is look at, okay, where are the positive examples? What are the things I can point to that are a good representation of Christ? And how can I get involved in those things? Um, We have two two friends who are priests in in Joss in northern Nigeria and and the way that they love and serve Jesus I wish that I that I lived the sort of lives that they live they've rescued uh, you know so many uh, girls from um from sexual slavery in their region they've uh, set up schools for um for a lot of Muslim children in their area who aren't getting educated to be able to be educated for free in church schools they're helping equip the local uh, Muslim women who don't have a the skills to be able to support themselves so that they can do that so their families aren't starving. When I look at them, I see um, the body of Christ in action, loving those outside the church, loving the world well. And um, so I would just encourage you, um, look at what where where are the local communities? Where are the Christians doing good things? Or mm-hmm. if, if they're not around you, what can you start? What can you do that tells a different story about who Christ is that could be a public witness to the world of of how we're called to love? I had a conversation with my mother um, who was basically bringing up, you know, instances of like the Crusades and the Inquisition and everything like that as, a, as basically saying, okay, how, do, how, how can you say that, that, that Christianity is good when so many bad things are done in Christianity's name? And I, I said, I can call myself a potato. It doesn't make me one. Um, Jesus is very clear. Thanks for the chuckle. Um, (laughs) Jesus is clear that you will know my followers by their fruit. And, you know, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Also in Matthew 7, 24, it says, you know, therefore, whoever hears the sayings of mine and does them, these are the fruit of the Spirit. If someone, I, I can call myself whatever I want, but if my life does not reflect a changed heart, um, now, never perfectly, because we all know how how miserably we fail. Uh, but being indwelt by the Spirit will fundamentally change you. If you're killing folks, if you're doing horrible pe- things, the love of God is not in you. 
So what you do is you say that that I am going to judge you by the standard that Jesus had. It's like if, if I am not living or if a person is not living in a way that is is Christ-like, I can feel pretty confident that that person is not someone who is spirit-indwelt and who's not a follower of Jesus Christ. And then they're going to experience, which I, I've talked about this before, the most terrifying verses in all of Scripture, which is in Matthew 7, which says, there are going to be people who claim the name of Jesus, and Jesus will look upon them and says, be gone, I never knew you. because, And then that actually leads into the contrast of the, the previous verse I said, therefore, whoever hears the sayings of mine and does them. Then you go into seven uh, Matthew 7, uh, 26, which is uh, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like foolish man who built his house on the sand, which will get washed away. You, the, a person who is a Christ follower lives like Christ, has the heart of Christ, sees people like Christ sees them, and will love them. If they use people, if they abuse people, that is not like Christ, and thus they are not spirit and dwelt. And I think, too, it is actually a good reminder to the rest of us that I think when we want to go out there and be able to teach people about Christ, I, as you're talking about this, I was remembering being in a brothel one time, and I stepped into the brothel and into one of the rooms where they would take a client and a girl in this particular brothel who had been trafficked, they had a picture of Jesus hanging over the bed. And I, it just, it sickened me, but I, it, it so stunned me because what I realized is even in my desire to teach her about the person of Christ, somebody has already painted a picture of him to her. Yeah. And I, I don't know that I had necessarily, you don't necessarily think of that. And so I think for those of us who are Christians, I think what you're, what we're talking about here in Nigeria and around the world is the reminder that we, it's not enough just to go in and be able to say and to, and to use the name of Jesus and expect that to mean something to people who have already seen something different used with that name. And so I, for her, I just thought, how do, how do we, how do I, how does anyone begin for this woman who that's the face that she sees in this room where horrible things happen to her? How do you begin to help her to see who Christ really is and that he would be grieved by what's happening to her more than anybody? But it was just that reminder, like it's, we, both both how we have to live it, but realizing that that is some of the challenge that we're up against. So some people that are responding just in really kind of hateful ways to the Christian message, how many of them have seen something that used the name of Christ that was that did something that violated something in them horribly? And I think that if we can recognize that, it calls for a different kind of patience and compassion and that we really need to be ready to introduce them to who he really is and not just be able to kind of even just throw a name around because that name means something different to them. Well, guys, we are out of time. We actually have one more question, and this is from Tasha. The good news is, though, this question will sum up this entire conversation perfectly. So, Naomi, you are on the hot seat. With so much pain and suffering in the world, how do you still find God in the midst of it? That is such a good question. And Tasha, I actually wish we could have a whole kind of session just on that question alone, because there's obviously that's um, there's so much we could say about that. But I think for me, one of the things is that um, as much as difficult as the question of suffering is for the Christian, I think it's one of the most difficult questions for us to answer. I think perhaps the most difficult question for the agnostic or the atheist or anybody else to answer is why it's wrong and why we ought to do anything about it. And the Christian 
has those answers and finds those answers in the Christian worldview. It is really only within the Christian worldview that you can find an ought. Um, for me, being in those arenas of um, domestic violence or trafficking or just the abuses that happen around the world, when I get in there, if without that kind of moral law, without that higher law, that objective framework, who's to say the way the trafficker views a woman and the way the rehabilitation worker views them, who's to say which one is right? It is only within that objective moral framework of a Judeo-Christian worldview where we have that higher moral law that says that each man, each woman, each person is made in the image of God, and nobody has the right to violate that. So I would say for me, that has been one of the things that I've held onto when looking at these just dark and horrific things that human beings can do to each other, but also just realizing what Christ will has redeemed in the end, has redeemed for now, but ultimately will redeem. Um, I have a six-year-old son, and this is a couple of years ago, so I think he was just about four when we were having this conversation, but it was near Easter time, and so we were talking about Easter, and I was saying how Jesus died on the Friday and how Saturday was a really difficult day for his friends and family, and then on Sunday he rose from the dead again, and they were celebrating. And he said to me, well, but how did he die? And I said, well, he died on the cross. And he said, I know, but, but how? And I found myself kind of stammering a little bit and struggling for words. And I said, well, they, took, they put nails into his hands and they put nails into his feet to hold him to the cross. And it hurt his body so much that ultimately he couldn't breathe anymore and he died. And he opened his little hand and he said, can you show me where they put the nail? And so I remember just kind of pointing to a place on his hand, and then he pulled out his little foot, and he said, can you show me where they put the nail in his feet? And I pointed to a place on his foot, and both of us were quiet afterwards, and then he said to me softly, and remember, he's just four years old, and he said, I didn't know that. I knew he died. I knew he came back to life, but I didn't know about the cross. And in that moment, I just thought, what is it about the cross that even a four-year-old can understand that something significant happened there. And I think it's for us to, to remember that as we see even the injustice in the present, to know that we believe in a God who himself willingly chose, in, chose to step in suffering himself and is the only possible way to allow freedom, but also to provide a redemption for us and a redemption against the inevitable evil. So I think it's a difficult question that we live with, but to me, honestly, it's only in the hope of the gospel and both that there is a God who sees, there is a God who, you know, when we talk about how each person was created in his own image, there's a phrase that we like to use now, like and no matter what story is said, we want to be able to say, I feel your pain. And sometimes we're claiming to feel a pain that we actually don't really know. We want to, we want to empathize with this person, but we don't really know what it was like to live with that. But for God, when we are created in his image, it's only him who, when a woman or a man is violated like that, it's his image who's violated at the same time. Only he can actually say, I feel your pain because he's been violated as well. But that is, again, that's what he took to the cross. It was sin and that was that need for redemption, but it was suffering too. Yeah. Well, Naomi, Joe, thank you guys for joining me and thank you all for listening and we will catch you next week. To find out more about our ministry or to donate, visit our website at rzim.org. If you're listening in Canada, that website is rzim.ca.